Hi, welcome to this episode of Ann Arbor AF, a podcast for folks trying to figure out what's going on in Ann Arbor. We discuss current events in local politics and policy and governance and other civic good times. I'm Michelle Hughes and my pronouns are she, her. I'm Jess Lee Top and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Molly Kleinman and my pronouns are she, her. We're your co-hosts to help you get informed and get involved. It's your city. Let's jump in. Today, we're talking about the next city council meeting coming up on Monday, April 19th. We'll be touching on a few interesting agenda items, including lots of housing, a little bike stuff, and shenanigans in the agenda. And we're also going to offer some ways for you to get involved. A quick process note, we record this a few days before the council meeting, which means there may be some changes to the agenda between now and then. And Jess, you're going to get us started way at the top of the agenda this week, right? The with the city administrator communications. I am. We. Don't I also often... wanted to point out that like this is an action-packed agenda, and like we would normally like to give each of these items a lot of room to breathe, but we're not going to be able to do that this time. That's true. So we have spoken into the ether our frustration with anemic agendas. <laughs> this one fixes all of it. <laughs> so buckle up, folks. We got some civics coming straight at you. <laughs> Starting with the city administrator communications, which is not a section we normally spend time on, but there's a lot in this one. There's the equity and inclusion report, which is a quarterly report from staff up to the city administrator. There's a report uh, and two reports from the Ann Arbor Housing Commission that I wanted to touch on. The equity and inclusion report, I am using this opportunity as I did the last time that it came up a quarter ago to call in because this one really frustrates me. I appreciate that an equity and inclusion report exists, but there is no documentation of goals. There's no documentation of benchmarks. There's no clear delineation between internal DEI work and external DEI work that pertains to uh, community members and how services are delivered in the community. There's inconsistent reporting from departments. It's just really kind of all over the place. So again, I appreciate that it exists, but I feel like we're really gonna need to take this up a notch if we're taking our DEI work seriously. To that end, I wanna reiterate my hope that our city develops a racial equity office sooner rather than later. The county has had one for a few years at this point and she's expanding her staff right now. Ann Arbor, as the largest municipality in the county, absolutely needs to step up and be a part of that work. We also passed a resolution declaring racism a public health crisis, and then we did nothing about it. That's right. There's been no money put towards it. And I'm not going to say no staff time, but the staff time that has been put towards it is really fractured across city units. And so I think if we're, again, going to make meaningful systemic change. We need a meaningful systemic framework against which we're working. And right now we don't have that. I also wanted to talk about the two, just the two, yes, the two uh, housing commission reports. One is on community engagement for downtown city owned properties and 10 other city owned properties. And the other one is um, a brief comment on staffing. Listeners may remember that in November of 2020, in addition to uh, changing who's in the Oval Office, Ann Arbor also voted in approval of Prop C, which was a 20-year millage for affordable housing. The Housing Commission is getting ready to gear up to create a lot of new affordable housing, which is awesome. It does mean that there's a lot to change as far as staff and as far as their process. So the memo regarding their staffing increase, I tell you what, if you want a peek at what the next five, six, seven years are going to look like. I do. I want that. I know, right? I didn't Um, have time to read it yet, but I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it after this podcast. It's really exciting. And I'll drop a link specifically to this one in the show notes, because understanding how they're staffing for the changes really is a little bit of a crystal ball into those changes. So that's fun. And then the last one that I wanted to mention in this section is the community engagement around the affordable housing prop or around, excuse me, city owned housing prop, excuse me, I'm just going to slow down. Community engagement around properties that the city owns that the housing commission has been exploring using for affordable housing. 
And so this document is pretty clear. It lists when the city council directed the housing commission to explore community engagement, approximately when that occurred and what the next steps are for each property. There's 10 properties listed in the text of the communication. There's more in the attachments. But it, again, if you're looking for that crystal ball into the future of what Ann Arbor affordable housing is going to look like, this gives specific properties, estimates of the number of units that can be delivered on the different properties. It really does go into a nice but manageable amount of detail. The last thing that I'll say, on this in particular is we know from the 2015 housing accessibility and community affordability report that the Washtenaw County commissioned that we need approximately 3,500 units over the next 15 years to satisfy just our most basic, very, very lowest unit of affordability. And this plan doesn't get to get us to that 3,500. And that's discounting other levels of affordability and other levels of uh, income for residents in the community. So this is awesome. It's great. It's so much more than we've had. And we as a community need to understand that this is not enough and we're going to need to do more. Even so, when we approved the millage, we knew that it was only going to get, get us halfway there. That's right. That's right. And we need it. It wasn't about not doing the millage that it just mm -hmm. needs to be a both and mindset. Right. So that's what I wanted to start us off with on communications. Molly has some thoughts about the budget. Actually, we all have thoughts about the budget. <laughs> yes, we do all have thoughts about the budget. And this is, I want to be very clear, this is not the final vote on the budget. This is uh, on the agenda. It's INT2. So the, these are things being introduced. This is a presentation on the budget. It's a very useful slide deck. The actual budget vote is not until May 17th. And May 3rd is when there will be a public hearing about the budget. So we keep talking about like, get ready to pay attention to the budget and talk about things. We have now reached that moment. This is the <laughs> proposed budget. We made it. We made it. Overall, the projected concern in the budget is about declining revenues and not increasing expenses. So we knew the pandemic pandemic was going to um, change a lot of things for the city bu city budgets all over the country. Um, this particular budget includes the CARES Act money, but does not include the American Rescue Act money. So there may yet be more money coming to the city that might Ad address some of the deficits that we have here. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Because um, there is still a deficit. Um, one of the things that I thought was really useful in the presentation is there are these nice little line graphs showing the shifting budget priorities broken out in different categories. So you can see that spending on pedestrians is going down, um, which is less than ideal. Mm -hmm. um, but spending in some other areas that we also care about, like diversity, equity, and inclusion, has been going up. Um, you know, you can take a look at this and if you can see, for example, concerns that you might have about how much we're spending on the police budget, this is now the chance to communicate to the city um, in a way that might actually make a difference on this year's budget um, that we wanted to change. Michelle, you had a couple of things you wanted to call out in the budget too, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was so, okay, so when I look at this budget, um, what I'm thinking is... I want, these are the questions that I have because this is the time to look at the budget presentation and have questions and then talk about your, talk about your questions to your city council members and kind of get ready to talk about this. And so these are, these are the things that like stuck out in my mind that I want to get more clarity on. Um, it says that we have, it says that this budget includes a $2.1 million deficit because of the COVID thing. But I was like, I thought the state law didn't allow us to have to run a budget deficit. Like I thought... I thought, I thought municipalities had to keep a balanced budget. So I'm not sure how we're doing that. Um, and that's a, that's a good question. I don't specifically know the answer to that, right. but I can speak from my perspective going through the DDA budget process mm -hmm. and having similar issues, right? Our, our revenue has been just torpedoed this last year. Yeah. We have like the city, an extremely healthy fund balance. And so we essentially have reservoirs that we can draw from okay. even when our expenses uh, exceed our revenues, we've got really healthy fund balances to be able to pull from we have to manage that as the city does over multiple years because there are certain governmental both basic and best practice levels 
under which we don't want to draw those fund balances. Mm -hmm. So if the city is like the DDA, they're allowed to run at a deficit if the fund balance covers the the balance um, without having them drop below that level. I don't know. That is indeed the case. It's in the, it's actually in the presentation that the city is very well managed financially and there is- You can't see it, but I'm high-fiving myself. (laughs) (laughs) There it is. Um, There's a solid, um, solid reserves that can cover the, a deficit, like the deficit that we're looking at for this year. Well, good. I asked a question, got an answer. So that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's how you do it folks. Yes. Got to ask, got to ask these questions. Um, another thing was like, I noticed on page 10 of the budget presentation, it said, um, let's see, it said excludes $3.5 million of requests needed to achieve a two zero. So I'm wondering, does that mean that there are requests that were that are now deferred, or does that mean that like there's three point there's also three point five million dollars of stuff, but it didn't make it onto that page? You know, that's <laughs> so. If I were to guess, uh, the Office of Sustainability and Innovation is a, a pretty unique entity in that they can pull funding sources from a lot of different places. Right. They can pull it not only from federal and state monies, but also from foundations, from nonprofits, from uh, I don't want to say private philanthropy, but there are other sectors beyond federal dollars that they can use as grants for this. Utilities, right? Like we we consistently see, and there's one later on in the budget, grants from DTE for different work. So my guess is that the work is staying in the budget pending funding source identification. Okay. Just, and that's just actually, a guess. But that's yeah, and, guess. That's, and that's the, um, the, the, the thing that excludes $3.5 million of requests, that's the fiscal year that's in the fiscal year 23 column. So like right now we're making a fiscal year 22 and 23 budget. um, And we're probably going to redo the the 23 when we actually get there. But um, so, yeah, maybe this is just, we're going to try and spend $3.5 million in fiscal year 23, but we're going to figure out how by then. (laughs) (laughs) Problems. Right. Um, And then, uh, Oh, the other thing I was excited about was the uh, master planning um, they, so the planning department is, is uh, looking to spend $100,000 in this budget and then $700,000 in fiscal year 23 um, on uh, single family zoning public outreach and uh, master planning process. The master planning process is, we talked about that at our, um, wait, have we aired that episode yet? It comes We're, next week. The <laughs> okay. timing is so great. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have an episode about what the master planning process is and it's, um, it's something that we need to do and it's something we've been kind of putting off and it's, it's going to, you know, let us get an, get a sense of what we as a community currently want from our zoning laws. Um, and it's, you know, our current zoning laws do not reflect what we as a community want and value. Um, and um, I like that we're going to spend a lot of money talking about it because that means that we're taking public outreach seriously. And um you know, I, I like that we're going to be trying to hear from uh, the people that um, are hard to reach and that we're taking seriously the fact that we need to uh, do the hard work of outreach to people um, in order to find out what we need. Because otherwise, you know, if all we hear from is the people who are already being served well by our by our laws, like they'll, they'll say, hey, things are great. And then we'll go, oh, things are great. But clearly things are not great. We're the eighth most segregated metropolitan area in the country. Um, so we need to be hearing from some different people. And I'm glad that master planning process is going to kick off. And I'm glad that we are taking seriously the public outreach. I wish we didn't have to wait till fiscal year 23 to do that. Um, That's true. Like I, I similarly feel a sense of urgency and by fiscal year 23, our current master plan, the backbone of it is going to be 25 years old, which is uh, like, that's a lot like having a laptop that's 25 years old, (laughs) getting it to work consistently. And we see that with our master plan as well. Honestly, I'm, although it's long overdue, I'm delighted to see the order of operations here. Because of the size of Ann Arbor as a city, we didn't qualify for red line maps, which means that how we incorporated racism into our 
housing and development policies is largely unknown, but it's absolutely there. We just can't point to red line insurance maps and say this is what it was. What we need is a genuine review of how Ann Arbor developed its policy over the really the 20th century. And again, we'll touch on this a little bit in next week's episode on master planning and zoning. But we need that historical reckoning before we look towards the future. We genuinely do. So I hear you on the impatience. I feel it. But Mm -hmm. I do feel like that this is an appropriate order. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. Cool. So that's the budget. Um, Michelle, I think you got through all of your questions, right? Yep, we did. Yep. So the, the dates to mark down on your calendar, May 3rd council meeting is the public hearing on the budget and May 17th is where it's actually going to get approved. And now we're moving on to the consent oh, agenda. I guess I, I guess I should at least mention the police. I don't think I've talked about that because, uh, the, but this budget does, this isn't a question. It's just a thumbs up. This, this budget, um, includes $250,000 of, um, of uh, thinking about how to do unarmed responders. And I'm happy to see us thinking about that. And it includes um, reducing the police uh, budget by seven employees. And uh, I think that's a good start because I'd, like I'd like to see us transition over to uh, an unarmed responders situation. So um, those are some good priorities there. Yes. Okay, sorry. Okay, consent agenda. <laughs> Consent agenda. Just to call some things out. I do. We can't do visuals. So I'm just telling you that I have a smiley face around most of the consent agenda, especially (laughs) two, three, four, and five, all of which we'll talk about briefly, but I'm just really happy about them. I'm looking at Jess's actual face and it is smiley. (laughs) (laughs) So CA2 is for bike lane maintenance. My prediction is that this is going to get pulled from the consent agenda based on the many questions that were in the agenda question document, uh, questioning this priority. So this is to move $100,000 from the major streets fund, which is funded by gas tax money. This is not general fund money to expand maintenance of mostly of the protected bike lanes in the city. Um, There's maintaining the protected bike lanes is more expensive. It requires special equipment, more frequent sweeping, proactive snow removal, and the city wants to maintain a higher level of service for these bike lanes than we have historically maintained for bike lanes, and it's going to cost more money, not a lot more money. Um, and so that's that's what this is. Maybe it will just go through in the consent agenda. I'm thrilled that the city is investing in proactively doing a better job of maintaining these bike lanes so that they can really function as year-round transportation infrastructure. Um, so, you know, stay tuned, I guess. We'll see what happens on Monday. I, I sure hope this thing passes because it'll be great. Um, oh, okay. Uh, now I would like to talk about three um, affordable housing, public housing uh, things that are on the agenda. Um, and that is uh, CA3, CA4, CA5. Um, these, are, these are all places where we're gonna build um, where the Ann Arbor Housing Commission is going to build publicly owned housing um, to house people who are making 60% of, of the area median income or less. Um, so it's like you, there's no, like, no one, no one who lives here is going to be required to pay more than 30% of their current income, um, no matter, even if their in current income is zero, as long as they, um, you know, they, the way they get it, they get in people by like a lottery. Uh, there's like 4,000 people waiting on the lottery to get these housing. You have to qualify by, you know, having a low income. Um, and, uh, but yeah, this is stuff that we desperately need to uh, help people out. Um, although, you know, okay, new speculation just dropped. I, I kind of wonder like um, these things are like this public housing stuff is great in terms of actually getting people housed um, who wouldn't be able to live here otherwise. But I, because it's like so niche and you have to meet all these requirements, I kind of suspect that it doesn't actually affect like the housing market for the rest of people. Like it would if we built, you know, market rate housing. That's absolutely correct. One of the things that I was really heartened to see in the housing communications that I mentioned a little bit earlier is 
how much more money the housing commission is expecting to get from yeah. HUD relating to ah. Biden administration decisions. So in addition to development of new housing, it's looking like the signs are optimistic. We're going to be able to support more vouchers in the city, more Section 8 vouchers, which mm. means people can live in more places around the yeah. city and there's fewer uh, income restrictions around that. You still have to qualify, obviously. But Michelle, what you're saying about this not really impacting the market, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right, because right, this is just going to house people who weren't going to live in an apartment anyway. They were going to have to live out of town and now they're going to live in town. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Which it's is great that we're going to, yeah, it's great. Yeah. I love it. I love that we're yeah. going to have, that we're going to be able to welcome these people into our mm -hmm. community. Um, and, you know, but yeah, it's like, um, it, this can't be our only thing. Pu building public housing isn't, can't be our only thing that we do. Right. This um, is the, we've talked about this before, right? The both and approach to addressing right. our crisis. We, yeah. we need a lot more, um, new market rate housing and we need a lot more affordable housing. Right. We need both of those things. Yeah, this is all this addressing gonna, the affordable housing side of right. Yeah, so this is the afford the public housing, and it's going to be great. So these three properties, seven twenty one North Main, that's um, an that's a uh, an abandoned fleet services building that the city used to use, um, and another one is uh, three fifty three South Main. That's the um, Palio lot. It's a tiny, tiny parking lot. Um, right next to the restaurant called Palio. And I, um, I would much rather have that be a 50 to 90 unit affordable housing thing than, than to have it be like the four parking, parking spaces that it is now. And I gotta say, like, let's, let's just imagine for two seconds, that's yeah. gonna be affordable housing, hopefully, across the street uh, where the DTE building used to be, there's new apartments going up and right over uh, on the other side of that parking structure, 350 South 5th across the street from the library is also probably going to be a mixed income project of affordable and market rate housing. We are about to have so many new neighbors, you guys. Yeah, so many new neighbors. Great. <laughs> yes. And then think about the kinds of businesses that that will support downtown when we have that many more people living there. Exactly. Um, you know, the, the evergreen complaint about the lack of a grocery store downtown. Mm -hmm. um, that's a lot more people to help support that kind of that kind of right. operation. I shop at the food co-op, which I consider to be downtown. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that's downtown. I don't know why people don't. Well, whatever. That's a whole other thing. We don't. Know <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, and then uh, so there's three of these. Seven twenty one North Main, um, the abandoned fleet services. Three fifty three South Main, Palio lot, and then the other one is uh, fifteen ten East Stadium, which is a firehouse. Um, so. Of these, um, the Palio lot is um, kind of that's been the easiest one to to get to get built. It's um, it's uh, qualifies for the federal funding from the low income housing tax credits, which is usually how um, the Ann Arbor Housing Commission has liked to build um, housing. And um, so, yeah, and they're talking about building a six to ten story building with. Uh, It'll be 50 to 90 units of, of affordable and of Ann Arbor Housing Commission affordable housing. Um, and I put it in my bullet points here for notes. I put a, se a separate bullet point to say 90, please. <laughs> I, <laughs> I want to squeeze as much housing onto these onto these lots as we can because we need it. Um, so, yeah, that's the Palio lot. But then um, both of the other ones, um, 721 North Main and 1510 East Stadium, were places that... Um, the housing commission had had when they first looked at their thing in 2019 um they were given the charge to look at all of our underutilized lots and um determine what should be done with them in the service of affordable housing and um when they looked at 721 north when i when i looked at both of these places they said well there's not a whole lot we can do here maybe we should just sell them um to a developer and then use that you know to build to build market rate housing and then we'll be able to take that money and use it elsewhere um, TBD, but, um, because of the, uh, so that, and they, they said that because both of those lots are not that good for getting, um, for getting this, uh, federal low-income housing tax credits money. Um, but boom, 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 there's a new source of funding in town. Um, new, and, uh, that is the, um, the affordable housing millage that we approved 
in the 2020 ballot. And so suddenly we are actually gonna be able to build um, publicly owned housing on those lots. And um, I, I, thumbs up to that. Um, 721 North Main still has some challenges because a lot of that land is on the floodplain or the floodway um, and has to remain open because of deed restrictions and um, restrictions on uh, the use of the funds. But um, so 721 North Main is a large lot, but we're only the best case scenario is to get a 19 unit apartment complex there. Uh, and the rest of that land has to remain open. Um, now, one thing that I find interesting is that I was at a protest the other day um, from Washtenaw Camp Outreach, and that is a uh, group of uh, homeless people and um, and their uh, and people who like to help them out, and it's specifically people who um, camp outdoors. Um, they uh, people who have you know their people who for whatever reason don't stay in the um, homeless shelter don't get uh, are unable to you know they either don't get or are unable to get into some of the uh, affordable housing programs that we have so these people have a um, uh, an, an interesting and unique perspective and they one of one of their demands so so among their demands at that protest was that 721 north main be made available for um, as a campground um, and an, an emergency they want they actually they wanted the, the the fleet services building to be an emergency shelter um, and um, they also wanted to have they wanted to make the city to commit to not disrupting people who are camping outdoors on publicly owned land um, they wanted that people who are um, if the police have to um, disrupt people who are camping on private land they wanted um, that to be um, they wanted more process around that so they had so that the people get 10 days notice before they're evicted from their campground they want um, neutral observers to make sure that the city isn't just like taking all their stuff and throwing it in the trash like they do in a lot of other cities um, so I hope that some of that stuff comes to pass um, but yeah 721 North Main um, they had a particular interest in being able to camp there um, they, they were even uh, talking about doing an occupation that very day at the protest, but uh, decided not to because the police were following them. Um, I think it's an interesting idea to ask that land be set aside for camping, especially right. if that land can't be used for development. Exactly. I am I am mindful that 721 North Main is one of our most toxic sites in the city. Right. And I am wondering if there's any even just very top level remediation that needs to be done in order for that to be safe for people just to be able to like sleep rough. So that's a question that I don't have an answer to, but it is a question that I have. I'm really interested in the idea i i am anxious that it be a safe one i was not aware of the toxicity of that place um, at some point uh when you're looking for a new 350 page report to read i'll send you uh, gruesome stories about leaking underground gas tanks oh those things <laughs> um the uh yeah because that was a fleet services building for the city's uh, stuff um but yeah, that's, and that's kind of the problem with these camp things is that like, you know, the city wants to, the, the, the Washtenaw Camp Outreach wanted to make these things, um, uh, wanted to make these things, you know, wanted the city to kind of commit to these things. But then like, I'm sure the city is worried about like, well, if we like let people camp on toxic grounds and camp in unsafe ways, then they're going to be liable. So that's probably why they don't, but um there should be something we can do, you know? And one of the, another demand was to, they wanted sanitation. They wanted toilets and um, dumpsters there and stuff like that. But uh, these are really humane requests. And, yeah. and I'm hoping that the city finds ways to have these conversations again in humane ways. Exactly. Um, so yeah, those are, that, that was, oh, uh, the, one more thing about 721 North Main was that um, it, uh, one of the demands of Washtenaw Camp Outreach was to have that was to have that put into a community land trust, and uh, I think it sounds like with the um, uh, with the deed restrictions that a lot of that land can't be um, can't have anything done with it. Um, and then as far as the other one, 
I don't know, is it better to have it in a community land trust or to have it be a 19 unit apartment complex? I don't really understand their community land trust um, argument. And I think, so coming from that, coming from the perspective of not understanding that, I would rather have a 19 unit apartment complex with um, safe, affordable housing there. But, um, you know, I'd be interested to hear more. Um, but for now, put me down for that apartment complex. Um, oh, briefly, um, 1510 East Stadium, uh, the firehouse. Um, oh yeah, no, I said that already. It didn't score well, but we can use millage money. It didn't score well for federal money, but we can use millage money. Okay, great. Um, and that's the consent agenda. That's what we're talking about, you guys. This yeah. is so packed. That's we're talking we're so about excited. stuff that they're not even probably going to talk about at council. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Right. This passes. I don't know how many right. questions about this were there on the consent agenda or on, on the agenda questions. Yeah, there were sounds, a bunch of questions. Yeah, sounds like um, sounds yes. like all these things are probably going to get pulled and discussed. Yes, it looks like um, there's one more housing-ish thing, Michelle, that you were going to talk about. That's, oh, yeah. That's now um, an ordinance. We're now getting out of the consent agenda. Yeah, and I think these are actually second reading with a um, uh, with a public hearing on at least some of these. It's uh, 700 North Main. It's um, it's over by the Summit Party Store. There used to be like three or four. Um, there used to be three or four uh, single-family homes there, um, and then. Uh, if they were going to get turned into a planned unit development by Avalon Housing, um, and then uh, some things happened. I think there was like floodplain law changes and stuff like that, so that development never actually came to pass, and so those um, those buildings fell into disrepair, and they got torn down, and now there's just um, a bunch of empty land there, and it looks like somebody's got a plan to start building there again. So I'm excited to see something get built there and that's going to be um uh some townhouses um i forgot how what number how, it's 22 some number, or 23 yeah 22 or 23 townhouses hell yeah mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. so yeah the rezoning and a site plan are both on the agenda and i'm excited about that mm -hmm. um, now we get to kick it over to ms ad universe herself <laughs> Speaking of being excited about housing, <laughs> C1, C1 on the agenda. Oh my gosh, you guys. It is, I'm going to read out the whole title because I'm so excited about it. An ordinance to amend section 5.15, table 5-15-2, and section 5.16.6 of chapter 55 of the Unified Development Code of Title 5 of the Code of the City of Ann Arbor, parentheses, accessory dwelling units. Oh, you guys. <laughs> ADUs are back. ADUs are back. Now, they've been percolating through the city for a while. Staff took them up, I think, the end of last year or early this year. The Ordinance Review Committee has had a hack at this. Planning Commission has done multiple working sessions uh, and decision sessions on this. And it has finally percolated up to City Council for a first reading. Super excited to see this come around because there's very little that individuals can do to affect housing accessibility and affordability in a community. ADUs are like it. That's all we get. We need to talk and the, about what they are. Yes. Uh, the restrictions that we have on ADUs have been so restrictive that we've seen almost none developed. So an ADU, an accessory dwelling unit, a lot of folks think of it as a basement apartment, a garden apartment, a garage apartment, an attic apartment. Essentially, it's another living unit appended to a primary home on a given property. An ADU is defined as a living unit with its own entrance, kitchen, and bathroom. So if you're just renting out a bedroom in your house, that's not an ADU. But if you're renting out your finished basement that has its own entrance, then it is. So that's what ADUs are. They're a way of adding very incremental density into neighborhoods that are already typically well-developed and well-served by city municipal services. So it's exciting to see these come back. They were legalized in 2016, extremely few were built. Uh, I did a round of community engagement on this in 2018 and made some proposals to change the ordinance based on what I, the feedback that I got from the community. It, 
basically died there, uh, but staff picked it back up this past fall and some of those changes are moving forward. So I just wanted to list the, the documents can be a little bit confusing to read. So I just wanted to summarize the changes, the proposed changes in the ordinance. The city council will either approve all of these, none of these, or some of these, hard to know. Probably some of these will move forward. Um, unclear whether it'll go through unchanged. So right now, ADUs are permitted in all R1 and R2A zones. That means all single family and some duplex zones. The update provides for ADUs in all residential zones. Right now, there's minimum square foot requirements for lots to be eligible for ADUs, which precludes a lot of central neighborhoods and ones that are well tra served by transit. The update eliminates the minimum square footage requirements. Right now, you can't construct a detached ADU. So for example, in a freestanding garage or other accessory building, if that building didn't exist prior to December 31st, 2016, which was often referred to as the sunset clause, this update eliminates the sunset clause. Right now, the property owner is required to live in either the primary or the accessory, accessory dwelling unit. The update eliminates the homeowner occupancy requirement. Right now, the homeowner is required to provide an additional parking space if their property is not within a quarter mile of transit service. Although this represents less than 5% of properties within Ann Arbor city limits, the update eliminates this requirement entirely. Finally, right now there are requirements about the ADU door has to be situated in relationship to the primary dwelling door. The update eliminates that requirement. So what these changes are doing is reflecting the feedback that uh, planning staff, building department staff have gotten from a number of people who wanted to develop ADUs or couldn't, but or did develop ADUs, but really struggled with it. These changes reflect the feedback that they've gotten. And the hope is that this would open the faucet up a bit on developing small, modest housing in Ann Arbor that doesn't require public dollars to do. And just how many ADUs have been built so far in the city? Do we know that number? The By the time I conducted my community engagement in 2018, after legalization in 2016, the answer was zero. Yeah. Since then, we've seen more permitted and a couple finished, but it's still, it's not even a fraction of a percent of what we'd expect to see with a healthy ordinance. Right. And this other cities that have done this have had experienced a real ADU boom, right? It creates whole industries of companies that just are exclusively ADU builders and it makes, yeah. which makes it even easier to build an ADU because there's someone who knows what they're doing that you can just hire. That's um, right. We, uh, so Los Angeles approved their ADU ordinance the same month that Ann Arbor did, but with a lot fewer restrictions. And one of the things that they saw almost immediately was a cottage industry in the building professions around ADUs. There were ADU designers, there were ADU builders, there were ADU permit expediters, which saves you a ton of time and money if you can get somebody uh, moving your project more quickly through. So I love looking at LA as an example of a new kind of marketplace really that comes up in response to a healthy ordinance. Something that I've been excited to see in San Francisco, and I think there are a handful of other um, municipalities that have done this, Seattle is one, uh, Santa Cruz I believe is one, is they've partnered with their local architecture departments, academic architecture departments, students there to create possible designs pre-approved designs by the city for ADUs. So if you, homeowner A, were to go to the city planning department and say, I would like ADU design number two, you don't have to get the site plan approved. You skip a lot of the permitting process because they've already reviewed and approved your building. So my hope is that the next thing we see is something that makes ADUs even cheaper and quicker to build, something like that. But these are some awesome starts. Yay. Yay! I'm excited. We bid, we bid ADU to housing issues. That's not true. We still have a lot of housing issues, but we've got one less. We've got 99 housing problems, but ADUs aren't one. Yes. Yeah. In fact, there's another uh, there's another housing thing on the agenda, and I would like Jess to talk about it. <laughs> Jess will talk about it, but only at a really high level. So there is a bit of land 
on Main Street where Sayo Church dumps into it across the street. You probably think of it as the golf course, rightly so. There's just a bit of land tucked back in there. There's a, excuse me, a developer, an architect team who's been working on developing these for, I believe, is it single family homes or apartments? Anyway, it's going to go from nothing to something. And so the what's on the agenda is a rezoning because right now this land has one, two, at least three different zones and they're looking to rezone it to a single zone. All right. Well, so yeah, it's definitely like something it's, it's either, it's either detached single family homes or it's something real similar like condos or something like that. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not, and, you know, it's not my, my most, it's not the thing I'm most excited about, but right. it is housing and I- It's the new need... market rate housing we were talking yeah, about 10 minutes exactly. ago. And that's one of the things that I'm so loving about this agenda. It is so housing saturated. We get to talk about affordable housing. We get to talk about incremental housing and ADUs. Mm -hmm. We get to talk about market rate housing. And <laughs> while we don't necessarily need to prioritize market rate housing in our advocacy, it's important to note that the folks that live in here and whoever the property owner ends up being, the taxes that they pay on that land is about to go way, way up, mm -hmm. which means we're going to be able to afford more Office of Sustainability and Innovation work, more affordable right. housing work, more equity work, and um, uh, sustainable outreach with folks like Washtenaw Camp Outreach. So mm -hmm. market rate housing, I don't, I don't want to forefront it in the work that we do, but it does provide community benefit. Did I, did I tell yet on this podcast the story about um, when somebody was talking about the development and they were like, we want to live near trees, not condos. And I said, uh, well, then why don't you move to the country? You can, buy, you can buy a cheap house there and live next to trees. And they were like, well, I want to live near my friends and loved ones and relatives. And I was like, well, then it sounds like you want to live near condos. Unless your loved ones are squirrels, they're not going to live in those trees. <laughs> <laughs> and no judgment, but that's a separate issue. <laughs> Jess, are you going to talk briefly about DC4? I will. This is another smiley face one. Uh, so I'm going to read what it is and then just say, yay. So this is a resolution. It does a couple of things. It's There's a settle, settlement agreement with something, I think, naughty, uh, that DTE did around their pricing of green energies. So half of this is the settlement and half of this is approving an agreement to partner with DTE to explore putting solar on our landfill. I'm just excited about that. It's low hanging fruit. It's typically like, this is a very well understood model in terms of funding and construction would provide a boatload of energy back to the grid at basically nobody's expense aesthetically and like emotionally. So I'm just excited about land, uh, solar on our landfill. That's awesome. All right, so now friends, the shenanigans awesome. are coming from inside the agenda. Oh boy, oh boy. Michelle. Oh my God. So it has been an emotional week for me. Um, so Jeff and Jeff Hayner is um, when Jeff Hayner is causing me emotions, they, they never seem to be good ones. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he posted a thing on Facebook um, where he was um, complaining about the press and uh, he doesn't, he doesn't like the press. He doesn't like the media. And he's uh, doesn't, you know, he doesn't have any qualms about sharing this opinion. And uh, if he had just said that, like we would have all just rolled our eyes and gone, "Oh, Jeff Hayner, he hates the First Amendment. He hates, he hates criticism, um, whatever." But instead, he posted he posted a uh, quote from Hunter S. Thompson um, from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas that used a uh, the homophobic f slur. Um, and, um, people in the community are mad about this because there are LGBT people in our community and we don't like, uh, when our elected officials are, um, are using slurs about us and the slur was in there, you know, it was to, to say like, oh, the press are a bunch of, and then like, what's the worst possible thing you can think of to call someone? Oh, someone like me. You know, that's so be, being like me is the worst possible thing you can you can think of to call someone. And so that's 
and this is the quote that he put in there. Um, and then um, when newspapers interviewed him about it, um, he never showed any contrition. He never showed any um, signs of understanding that what he had done was wrong. He always doubled down on it. He always, um, uh, he tried to, he tried to weasel out of it by saying, oh, it's just a quote or um, things like that. It's, it's an archaic word, he said in one, at one he point. Said, Nobody uses that word anymore. And I was right. like, really? Because I've heard that word. And many exactly. people in this community have heard that word directed at themselves, like exactly. in their lifetimes. Yeah, there's like, we have in our community people who lived through the AIDS crisis. We have people in our community, you know, so like, um, I, you know, and yeah, so, um, so I've been complaining about this and saying that Jeff Hainer needs to apologize. Well, he did give a perfunctory apology, which I couldn't see because I was blocked by him. Um, but, uh, you know, it was repeated in the newspapers and stuff like that. But then he just went right back to saying, oh, and anyone who says that this is a, a you know, anyone who says that they're mad about this is insincere. And because there's no way anyone could possibly be mad about this. Like, and, uh, you know, so I called in to uh, a couple of different committees this week. I called to the Liquor License Review Committee because that's a committee that Jeff Hainer is on. <laughs> because that was my first opportunity to give public comment complaining about this. Um, and I called into um, the admin committee where they were actually considering uh, taking action against Jeff Hainer about this. And um, in my advocacy, I, it, I, during the course of my advocacy, I was, set, I, I was told by Kathy Griswold uh, that I was in, being in, an insincere opportunist by, by complaining about this. And it's like, really? Like, she thinks that this is why you, she can't imagine any reason why a, a transgender lesbian might be legitimately upset that people are using slurs, that their elected officials are using slurs. Um, and, you know, Jeff Hainer said that same thing in, um, in the newspaper. Um, and uh, so we've had um, Travis Redina and Katie Scott have both um, written open letters Council member uh, publicly denouncing this and I was just going to um, identify them Michelle so council know, those which... two are actually uh oh yeah sorry I was just going to identify those two so it's council yeah, member not... Travis sorry, Regina and county commissioner Katie Scott oh are we having technical difficulties while we're waiting for Michelle to come back this has been a big feelings moment. And, you know, we don't typically talk about council issues away from the table. One of the reasons that we're talking about this is because the council issues are making their way to the table. I do want to call out, it is extremely not okay for somebody in a position of power, like a city council member, to name call a constituent or any kind of community member. It's not okay to label someone an insincere opportunist that's punching down. So I really encourage our community leaders to be much more thoughtful about how they're engaging people that they don't agree with. We're not asking for you to agree with everything, although not agreeing on this is a big problem, but don't name call. Don't right. name call. Michelle, we lost you for a moment, so. Sorry, I'm back, yeah. Um, it's fine. Yeah. So did we talk about uh, City Council Member Travis Regina? Um, he's an LGBT council member um, and Katie Scott uh, County Commissioner is also LGBT and those two are 100% of the LGBT people who are um, so who are elected to represent well, Ann Arbor. J uh, Jason Morgan but I actually don't know uh, what his constituency is. Yeah I think I think Ann Arbor isn't actually in his district like he Got it. he's on the city he's on the county commission but I don't think Ann Arbor mm -hmm. is in his district. Okay thank you. Um, I could be wrong about that. Yeah. But, um, you know, and they've each released statements condemning this. So, you know, and but yeah, the LGBT community is mad about this. And, um, you know, the Jim Toy Community Center has also released an, a statement condemning Jeff Hainer's actions. So um, and the only reason I have to, like, talk about all this is that I, I'm complaining about it and I'm not being an insincere opportunist. I feel really... I feel like I have to, ah, oh, and I'm so mad that I have to like say that to people that I, that my anger about this is legitimate. And, you know, um, like 
for 20 years, I was in the closet because I was afraid to come out and be myself. Um, and it was because of, you know, homophobia. I didn't want to, you know, and transphobia. And I didn't, I didn't want to um, have to face that. And I thought, well, if I, maybe if I just, maybe if I just don't transition, I can just, I can just not face this stuff. Um, and it didn't work out for me. It was, uh, that nearly killed me. And, um, you know, I know lots of people who are currently facing, um, things they've people, I know people who have lost their jobs because of transphobia. I know people who quit their jobs because of transphobic harassment. I know people who have been denied healthcare because of transphobia and like, um, these attitudes are allowed to persist because people don't call them out when they see them. And so like, you know, it's, it's one thing, like, this is why we have to take such a strong and, and immediate stand against this, because like, you know, we have a, you know, we have a town where, you know, I, I don't think anyone would admit to being anti-LGBT and yet people face harassment and discrimination. And, um, you know, it's because these attitudes are allowed to persist. So if you see it happening around you, you have to say something, you have to act, you have to let everyone know in the strongest possible terms that it is not okay. And it's these things, like they start from little comments, they start from little things, and then they move up to policy, where we see in 31 states right now, um, there's anti-transgender bills. And I think Michigan might even be one of them. They're trying to, Michigan they're trying to find is, some yes. way to yeah, they're trying to find some way to get around the, the governor's veto and, um, and put some anti-transgender stuff in our, in our, in our laws. And so that's why you have to call this stuff out immediately and strongly. And so, um, which brings us to council agenda. Yes. This is what's on the council agenda. Then, um, the, uh, um, the council administration committee, um, is kind of tasked with, um, disciplining council members um, and talking about inter interpersonal discussions and things like that between them. And, um, and so they voted on a resolution, they voted to approve a resolution to remove Jeff Hayner from all of his committee assignments until um, the committee assignments are reassigned in December. Um, so Jeff Hayner is an elected official they can't just like remove him from office, um, but they felt the need to protect the community from him and um, and to uh, you know and to make it so that um, LGBT people might be more willing to uh, feel that the government represents them and to feel like uh, you know if they like I I would imagine that people would have a hard that LGBT people would have a hard time approaching a a, a committee that you know, has as its liaison, someone who they know uses slurs against them. Um, it is daunting, even in the best, even in the best possible case, it's daunting to communicate with city council members and to get involved in city politics. And the last thing you need is someone making it more daunting. So they, so they're voting, they voted on the resolution to remove him from all, um, from all of his committee assignments. And, so um, they didn't vote on that resolution. They voted to bring right. that resolution. I'm to sorry. Council. Yes, that's right. They voted. It's all good. It's all good. Yeah, they voted to bring it to council. So that's why it's on the council agenda. Um, and there's also been some questions um, of like how what gives them the power to do this because there are some council rules involving uh, censuring members of the council for this for X Y Z offenses. And this was not an X Y Z offense. This was a an offense that they didn't even think to put in there. No one thought that somebody would be using um, would be using homophobic bigoted language. Um, but it turns out that the council does have the ability to do this because um, the council is the body that decides what um, committees people serve on. And um, so the council can just decide not to put him not to put him on committees. Um, and that's what's on the agenda on Monday. Um, but it, you know, it's up to voters to actually get rid of him. Um, I've heard of some people talking about um, circulating a recall petition. I don't know about that. Um, we can vote him out in 2022, um, but the city council can't actually remove him because he's an elected official. Um, 
but um so yeah that so removing them from committees is the best they can do and that's what they're going to do uh that's what they're that's what they're that's what's on the agenda to vote on um the um now Councilmember griswold voted against bringing this forward to the uh to the to the city council and then Councilmember ramlawi who was on the administration committee vote initially voted to bring it to the council and now he's he's trying to walk that back um and say that he doesn't want that to happen and he's he's made up some process concerns about why this is oh we shouldn't we shouldn't move quickly but we shouldn't move quickly on this he thinks you know but like in my opinion yes we absolutely need to move quickly because you can't just let this stuff linger and hurt people in our community um and so um we might see we might see a situation where not all of the city council members vote to censure Jeff Hayner, and I think that would be really awful because the signal that it, because of the signal that it would send. Right now, we have one council member who thinks that it's okay for council members to to use homophobic language. But once any council member who votes not to censure him over this, well, they're sending that same signal to the LGBT community as well. Um, and uh, so. We're talking right now about DC five the, the, to remove Jeff Hayner from these things. Um, DC six is a resolution that was just dropped on there by Kathy Griswold, um, who has an alternative to punishing Jeff Hayner. <laughs> has an alternative, and okay. Another thing is, it's not even just about punishment. Like the community needs to be protected from Jeff Hayner. Like the, the the city needs to show the city needs to show that LGBT people are welcome and valued. The city needs to show that uh, LGBT people's opinions are welcome and valid in communicating with the city. And they can't do that as long as Jeff Hayner is um, on these things. So it's not just about punishing him. It's about protecting the community. Um, but Kathy Griswold's idea is um, why don't we have um, some sort of, why don't we put 20, she wants to put $20,000 towards some, uh, towards some trainings. What's up? I think she wants to hire yeah. a consultant. She wants to hire a consultant to make um, to make uh, communication go better between city council members, as if that was the problem. Um, and she and wants. Hold... Go ahead. Yeah, and and she wants uh, council members to who you know do things like this, Jeff Hayner, for example, to go to undergo like some kind of training and correction at the city council meeting and at the admin committee meeting, which already have important things to do. Um, and they can't be, you know, we can't be giving DEI trainings to council members during the city council meetings that already go past midnight um, just to get their basic work done. No amount of training is gonna solve this problem either. Exactly, it's, exactly. No yeah. amount of training is going to convince Jeff Hayner that he was wrong. And also no amount of training is going to make LGBT, no amount of training Jeff Hayner is going to convince the LGBT community that it's safe and well, that there's, that it's safe to communicate with the city and that they're welcome to do so. Right. Well, so one of the key features then about this resolution to spend money that the city, we just discussed the budget, the city doesn't have money to spare, but to spend $20,000 to hire a consultant to help with council communicating communication and that all outstanding and pending actions against council members be referred to this mediation process that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So very this, this resolution is very explicitly about delaying consequences for council member Hayner mm -hmm. for his bigoted actions. Right. To me, this is, how is this not just as bad as the bigoted action? Working mm -hmm. hard quietly to protect the bigots as opposed to to protect the LGBT community in Ann Arbor. Exactly. And I, and I also, okay, I can't, I can't not mention that this comes right on the heels of the last city council meeting where there was a, there was a resolution um, condemning um, hatred against and, and racist actions against uh, um, Asian, Asian Americans and the Asians in Ann Arbor. And um, the resolution condemned white supremacy and white terrorism. And Councilmember Hayner and Ramlawi, both of them said, oh, well, they just couldn't bring themselves to, to condemn white supremacy last week. And now 
let's and now there's some council members saying, oh, we should we should give Jeff Hayner a break for hurting our LGBT community directly. This is just it's just wild. But they they need to be we need to we need a community where everyone feels welcome to contribute and everyone feels welcome to communicate with the city and to, and to get involved in politics and it's just, and just it's not going to happen here just yeah. to feel, and to feel safe yeah to feel safe full stop and exactly it, it's becoming a real pattern among certain council members mm-hmm. we're starting to see who they who they want to feel safe and who they don't think should feel safe mm-hmm. uh, and yeah it's it's very upsetting so I think- my we we all have issues with this resolution dc6 i i am going to read a couple of the whereases you guys know that i I care a lot about those uh whereas council is at an impasse in our ability to self-govern multiple interpersonal disagreements and whereas council members have attempted without significant success to improve the effectiveness of deliberations at council meetings I would want to see more meaningful connection happening interpersonally between the council members. And for example, a meaningful, effective apology accompanied by a plan for action by somebody like council member Hayner before committing public resources to this, because otherwise all we're doing is a huge dog and pony show performance of look, we're really trying to get along without there being any real heart in that work or expecting genuine accountability among the different council members. We've had quote unquote tone issues on council for a while where folks have not communicated respectfully or effectively with each other and often not respectfully out to their constituents. It does feel like it's not just get, that noise isn't just getting louder, it's becoming a lot more harmful. So mm-hmm. yes, we'll vote them out. Yes, we will hold our elected account, uh, officials accountable by taking away responsibilities that they've demonstrated they're, they're not capable of fulfilling. But I also think we need to be asking more of them in working with each other than something like this does. Yeah, I, I also wanted to talk about too, like I think that um, in the, the, the thing about talking about um, the multiple disagreements that they're having. Um, I also hear Kathy Griswold in there talking, maybe this is just me, but um, there's um, there's a big movement amongst some uh, city council members and their supporters to shame um, Jen Ayer for being a victim of domestic violence. And um, they're using this uh, FOIA appeal thing as a, as a thing, because like somebody tried to get... Um, uh, somebody tried to FOIA police reports that were filed by city council members. Um, and the reason they did that was because council members were using, were calling the police to complain about their constituents who were, who were, who were criticizing them. Um, but in that response, they left out a, um, they left out a police report filed it from Jen Ayer's house where she was being a victim of domestic violence. Um, and um, a bunch of people want to, um, you know, a bunch of the council members want to want that report out there. They want, they want, they want to allege some sort of corruption happened here. They want to shame her and spread, you know, spread her personal business around. And it's just, it's not, and that's another thing that is going to make people feel unwelcome in our community because there are women, there are victims of domestic violence in this community who are um, not going to feel safe and they're not going to feel okay, you know, getting involved in politics if they think that um, that their personal business is going to be spread around and used politically like that. And so I think Kathy Griswold is trying to say that that issue is the same as Jeff Hayner doing, um, doing a bigotry and um, I think that, I don't know, it's, I'm, I'm too mad to be coherent. I'm sorry. 
I know it, it's a lot. And one of the reasons that we're talking about these shenanigans, which again, we, we mostly try to omit them from council conversations, but again, shenanigans have found their way into two council resolutions. So we felt the need to address it for a variety of personal and pod reasons. I will echo James Baldwin in saying that we can disagree and still love each other unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and denial of my humanity and right to exist. And I think that's something that we're dealing with on council is a tone deafness to the difference between disagreement and oppression. Mm -hmm. And I really need all of our leaders to become much more vigilant about listening for that. Yeah. Well, I think that's about it then. That's yeah. So on that note, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up. This was a long episode today. Wanted to give a quick um, reminder to everyone that the there's a meeting this coming Tuesday, April nineteenth at seven o'clock. It's a joint planning commission. April twentieth. April twentieth. Yes. Thank you. April twentieth. It's whatever Tuesday is. Um, <laughs> it's a joint meeting between transportation and planning commissions to review the final version or the near final version of the comprehensive transportation plan moving together towards vision zero. This has been years in the making and the this will be the point at which these commissions review it and then recommend it to city council at which point it would become, if council approves it, it would become a part of the city's master plan and it would um, supersede a lot of much older transportation plan documents for the city. So if you want to come and hear about that, make public comment about it, there will be an opportunity at this Tuesday's meeting. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, as always, thank you to everyone who supported us on our coffee. If you'd like to send us a few dollars to cover our hosting fees, you can find us at ko-fi.com slash Ann Arbor AF. That's it for this episode of Ann Arbor AF. We are your co-hosts, Molly Kleinman, Michelle Hughes, and myself, Jess Lita. And thanks always to our producer, Jared Malestein. Theme music is I Dunno by Grapes. For questions about this podcast or ideas about future episodes, you can email us at annarborafpod at gmail.com. Get informed, then get involved. It's your city.